So my topic, if you will, today is a rather large one. (laughs) My text for today is a huge one, a massive one called the Old Testament, which of course makes up most of your Bible. Now I've given you uh, on the screen here, if it's if it's going to come up, is our PowerPoint working, Ingrid? <laughs> anyway, it, I'll just give you a, a quick overview of the Old Testament here, if in case you're not familiar with this. I know some of you may not be. So, you, your Old Testament, your Old Testament. If you look in your table of contents in your Bible, you'll see all the way in the Old Testament, which of course goes the first book is Genesis all the way to the last one, that, that very famous Italian prophet called Malachi. No, it's not Malachi. It's Malachi. Is that, that's how I would say it anyway. You guys can laugh. You know, lighten up a bit, all right? You're very somber, all right? But anyway, your Old Testament, going all the way from Genesis to Malachi, is really divided up into genres. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but your Old Testament is, is, is not chronological, not chronological. It's it's divided up into its genre. A genre is just simply a literary type. Your first genre or literary type is the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is, of course, Penta being five. Penta being five. You have five books and they were written by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then you come to the historical books. That is the history of Israel. Twelve books there. Then you come to the poetical books. That's right in the middle of your Bible. There's poetry. Yes, there is Hebrew poetry in your Bible. Of course, Job, believe it or not, Job is mostly poetry. So you got Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Then you have the prophetic books. You got 12 major, 12 minor, uh, and it has nothing to do with uh, their importance. It's just the size, okay? Major being they're bigger, more more words there. So, as you can see there, basically what I want to do today is look at God's structure of the Bible. How has God structured His Bible? This is His Word. These are His inspired, inerrant, infallible words. This Bible is, is no, unlike no other book that you can ever read. It is alive, and it is powerful, and it is like a double-edged sword that pierces into our soul and divides and conquers Many of you can relate, as I can, how God's word has pierced and has provoked and, re- and re- given reproof and, and correction and instruction in righteousness that we can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word does that for every Christian. If you've never felt that, well, then you're probably not a Christian. So that is essentially the Old Testament, and then the the New Testament is up there as well, which, of course, is divided up into four genres, the Gospels, Acts, Epistles, and Revelation. Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. But let's look at the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with what that means, Old Testament, it just simply means testament is an agreement. Testament is a, really, we could also say Old Covenant. It's agreement, a covenant that, is, that was made between God and his people. God makes covenants. God makes agreements. He makes testaments. Because God is not a distant God. He is a close God. And he, he wants to have fellowship and a relationship with his people. So he gave us the old covenant agreement. Which of course is divided up into five parts. Sorry, four parts. 
And the first part is the Pentateuch, which is those five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Of course, those who love to attack the Bible like to say that Moses is not the author of those five books. But I would totally disagree with that. I firmly believe Moses is the author, and God used uh, all uh, the human authors to write his word. But of course, he did it without error. They said exactly what God wanted them to say. If you turn to Genesis, the very first verse in your Bible, it's interesting how God starts his word. There's many ways that God could have started this marvelous book. Have you ever thought about how God could have started his book? Many ways he could have done that. But he starts off in Genesis 1-1 by just simply saying, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God doesn't even attempt to prove that he exists. Because, of course, according to Romans 1, there is no such thing as an honest atheist. Notice I said honest atheist. Because Romans 1 says everyone believes there's a God. Everyone. Of course, Romans 1 also states why there are those who like to put up billboards. There's a billboard just over this way that I saw earlier this week. Last week, I should say. Something about... It's from the new atheist, essentially. Why do people do that? Because Romans 1 says they suppress the truth. They don't want to know the truth because with truth comes responsibility. So God just simply says, in the beginning, God. He doesn't justify or try to explain or prove that there is a God, that He exists. He just says, I exist and I have always been from the beginning. God did not have a mother. And by the way, he says that he created the heavens and the earth. Everything that we see around us was created by him. He is the creator. And if you've ever wondered when that took place, when did God create the universe, let me give you an interesting date to think about. Because the Jews date the beginning, in other words, the Jews date creation 3,760 B.C. By the way, when it, last Thursday when I was passing out Bibles, I was talking to... I went up to these guys and said, hey, I'd like to give you some New, some, uh, some new Year cheer by giving away, away a Bible. Do, would, do you have a Bible? Would you like to have one? Yes, I'd love to have one. Thank you very much. Before I left, the guy asked me, how do you know that Jesus was ever on this earth? I said, there's a lot of reasons I, that, that proves that. Number one, just look at the calendar. The whole calendar revolves around Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's 3,760 years before Christ, approximately. So if you're wondering when, when was the earth created, when was the universe created, you can roughly come to that time period. So I hope you're a young earth creationist. I hope you don't believe in evolution. I hope you don't believe in theistic evolution. I hope you don't believe in millions, that God created things millions and millions of years ago because the earth is young. The earth is very young. There's much proof of that. You can look at some of the books over there that will, that will show that to you. But What are the contents of these five books? What I want to do today is look at the Pentateuch, the historical books, the 
poetical books and the prophetic books. And, and, and you, we're going to look, we're going to break them up into their contents. What is the point at issue? What is the function of that genre? And hopefully you'll see a unified theme when we're all done here. Okay? The contents of the five books of Moses. By the way, think about this. Don't answer out loud, okay, when I ask a question. But, but think about this. What are the contents of those five books? Just mull that over in your brain for a few seconds. There, hopefully there's two things that come to your mind. Number one, I hope you're thinking of laws. I hope you're thinking of a lot of laws. In fact, you ought to be thinking of 613 laws in those five books. God gave a lot of laws, 613 to be exact. So that is part of the contents, but that's not the only part of the contents. Hopefully you're thinking of something else. Hopefully you're thinking of the sacrificial system that God set up for his people. Now, why is this sacrificial system needed? If you understand that none of us can keep all 613 laws, you'll understand the answer to the question of, why is a sacrificial system needed? And the answer is, excuse me, I'm having a a frog in my throat, and he's got his legs crossed at the moment. Why is this needed? Why is the sacrificial system needed? Because no one kept all those laws. Jesus is the only one who could possibly keep all 613 laws. He lived the life you should have lived. Praise God that he was merciful and gracious to give us these sacrifices. Or I should say, give Israel these sacrifices. And if you read the, the Old Testament, you'll find, in fact, there were five major sacrifices. You can go back and read them. You'll find them in the book of Leviticus. I hope you've read through the Bible in a year before. But if you've ever done that, often people, you know, they start with these, these good New Year's resolution, right? I'm going to read through the Bible this year. They start in Genesis and by the time they get to Leviticus, they've virtually given up. Leviticus is a wonderful book if you understand what it's talking about and what it's there for. Part of that is you see these five major sacrifices that God gave to his people because they could not keep those 613 laws. So that's the contents. So what's the point at issue? What's the point at issue? Well, there's one word, particularly, particularly in the book of Leviticus, that is highlighted over and over again. And when you see a word in Scripture, particularly in one book of the Bible, that's mentioned many times, you need to sit up and take note of it, because it's very important to God. And what's important to Him should be important to us. It is the word, by the way, holiness. The point at issue in these five books is holiness, and by holiness, it's not typically what you would often think, what I, at least what I used to think growing up as holiness. Well, that's sinlessness. That's perfection. Yes, God is holy in that sense. God is holy in the sense that he is perfect, that God has never sinned and cannot sin. That is just totally against his nature. But you need to think of holiness as that plus much more. Holiness, when God says he is holy, it means that he is unique. There is no one and nothing like God. He is totally unique. He is totally separate from his creation. He is distinct. 
You understand, uh, just the past couple weeks I've been teaching my kids, my kids who God is. And <clears throat> I've been trying to show them, are, are we like God? Well, their first answer was no. That's typical how a kid might respond. No, we're not like God. But, but in fact, we are in some respects like God. Because the Bible says in Genesis 1, He created us in His image. You just need to understand what His image is to understand in what ways you were made like God. But in many ways, we're not like God. So, so yes, we're like God, and no, we're not like God. For example, God's perfect. He really is holy. That's one of the ways. God's omnipresent. He's all-powerful. He's, he's, he's everywhere. I mean, He's unchanging. You know, the list goes on. Those are ways we're not like God. So he is unique. There is nothing in his creation that is like him. That is one of the things that makes him God. So the point at issue here is holiness. And this word holiness, separateness, uh, distinctness, or difference is a very important word. And the word holy or holiness occurs, in fact, 200 times in the Pentateuch. 200 times. So it's obviously something very important. It is, in fact, the pointed issue in, in those five books. The reason for giving the laws, you say, why did God give 613 laws? The reason for giving the laws is so that people would come to be in their practice what God is in his own character. God is holy. And in fact, in 1 Peter, Peter told us we are to be holy as he is holy. God sets the standard, and we're to be like him. In Leviticus 11, verse 4, you'll see Peter quoting from Leviticus. It says, uh, oh, sorry, I didn't put it up there. Leviticus 11, 4, you, hopefully you're familiar. It just says, be holy as I am holy. So God wanted his people to be different. He wanted his people to be separate. He wanted them to be unique. He didn't want them to just blend in with the Canaanites and the rest of the Egyptians and the rest of the world around them. He wanted them to be unique. Well, there's many applications there for us. We are God's people. Those of us who are Christians are God's people. He calls us to be unique. He calls us not to be worldly, to be caught up in this world system, but to be separate, distinct, Well, since no one could keep the laws, you have to ask the question, why have sacrifices? Why have sacrifices if no one can keep all 613 laws, except Jesus, of course, who can do that? And to answer that, I will ask another question. What happened in every sacrifice? There is one thing, at least one thing, that happened in every one of those sacrifices in the Old Testament. Do you know what it is? Blood was shed. In every one of the five major sacrifices, blood had to be shed. The lamb's throat was cut, for example. The lamb would shed its blood and die to atone, to cover the sins of that person. Blood had to be shed. That is, that is what happened in every sacrifice. Well, then you have to ask the question, why was that blood shed? If they couldn't keep all one, 613 laws, what's the point? It's because God was showing that death was required for every sinner. Death was required. That's why the blood was shed, so that that animal would die. 
Did the blood cleanse away the sin? When that Israelite would put his hand on the head of that lamb, and the priest would cut the throat of that lamb, and he would keep his hand there as that lamb died, and he would shed his blood for him. Did that take away his sin? Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay? When they killed that, that goat, the bull, lamb, whatever that animal was, Hebrews makes it quite clear, it is impossible. So why should we read these books today, then, you might ask? Should we read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? And the answer is, yes, we should. They should cause our hearts to long for the perfect sacrifice that was offered by a perfect priest. So when you read those books, you need to have that in your heart, in the back of your mind. You ought to be longing for something bigger and better and greater. That's what those books should cause your heart to feel. So the function, here's the functions on the screen, <clears throat> to show the need for a perfect priest. The Pentateuch functions in this way to show you the need for the perfect priest. Aaron wasn't the perfect priest. All of the other Levites who came after Aaron, those high priests were not the perfect priest. They were sinners, and the Bible, the Bible shows that quite clearly. That is why God wants to continually illustrate that we need a substitutionary atonement for sin. Because those human priests and those, those sacrifices were incomplete. We can't save ourselves. No human priest can save you. So they showed the need for a perfect priest. Of course, Jesus Christ is the perfect priest. And that's one of the things that Hebrews shows us. Hebrews shows that Jesus Christ is better than everything, including the Old Testament sacrifices including the Old Testament priest. Jesus is our great high priest, Hebrews says. Let's go to the historical books. <clears throat> the historical books, which of course you can turn through those five books of Moses there and you come to Joshua. Joshua is the first of the historical books. Moses died. He disobeyed God. He wasn't allowed into the promised land. Joshua becomes the next leader of Israel. So the historical books, there's 12 of them. They go all the way from Joshua in your Bible to the book of Esther. What are these books about? What are they about? Look at Joshua 1, and you'll find what these books are about, essentially what they're about. Look at Joshua 1, verses 1 and 2. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. So what are these books about? That sums up, essentially, helping us to understand part of the contents. These books contain the history of God's people and their land. Israel is God's chosen nation. And by the way, let me just state, woe to any nation 
who does not help Israel. This is one reason why, why New Zealand is being cursed right now and why many the Arab nations are being cursed by God right now is because they're not for Israel, they're against Israel. God says this, this is his chosen nation. The church has not replaced Israel. <laughs> they are still his chosen people. And the Bible says those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. So you wonder why... So many people have it so difficult. That's one of the reasons why. So may the government of New Zealand wake up and bless Israel. So the contents is essentially the history of God's people and their land. We could divide the contents up into into a couple different points. Number one, how Israel got the land. That's what Joshua is about. How Israel got the land. That was their land that God gave to them. And by the way, it is still Israel's land even today. It's not not the Palestinians. Oh, they might like to claim it. God gave it to Israel, and it belongs to them. So it is about how Israel got the land. Now, how do you feel when you read the book of Joshua? Do you feel good or bad? I hope you feel good. Despite the fact that there's a lot of people who die, uh, may I remind you that God is the one who told them to slaughter the Canaanites. Those people got exactly what they deserve. It's not a nice picture, but, but hopefully you feel fairly good. I, when I read Joshua, I'm encouraged because there I see good leadership. Now, how do you feel when you read the next book, the book of Judges? By the way, turn to Judges chapter 1. How do you feel when you read the book of Judges? Do you feel the same as you, you do about this book? Or Joshua, do you feel the same? I don't. In the book of Judges, I I get quite discouraged in a way because there's this nasty cycle that goes on in the book of Judges. If you look at Judges chapter 1, verse 1, this will kind of give it away. Judges 1, verse 1. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So here we go. The people do well while the judge is alive. They they did well while Joshua was alive. But the cycle continues through the book of Judges. When the leader dies or the judge dies, well, the country goes downhill. So there's this nasty cycle. They do well while the leader is alive. Then they rebel against God. They worship idols. God sends them into judgment then they repent of their sin, then they do well again, and then they forget God and they start to worship idols and God sends them into judgment, and then they repent of their sin, and then they do well again. Over and over again, they go through this cycle in the book of Judges, and it's quite discouraging. So as long as that leader is alive, they do fairly well. Now how do you feel when you read the next book in your Bible? When you read the book of Ruth, how do you feel? Of course, Ruth is, as we saw in Matthew chapter 1, she is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She is in the line of Jesus. Uh, I forget exactly what she is, if she's the great-grandmother of King David or what. I, I forget how that works. But she, even though a Gentile woman, is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So how do you feel when you read Ruth? Are you discouraged or encouraged? Hopefully you're encouraged, because that's the point. Why? 
Because we see in the book of Ruth, we see faith in the midst of faithlessness. We see people who have forgotten God, uh, and, and some of them even worshiping idols. They've, in the midst of this faithlessness, here is a woman who is a Gentile who has faith in Yahweh, in Jehovah. And God blessed this Gentile woman. In fact, look at Ruth, the very last verse in Ruth. Look at the very last verse in Ruth. I want you to see how God blessed her. Okay, don't take my words for it. Look at Scripture, please. Very last verse in, in the book of Ruth, which, of course, is chapter 4, verse 22. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Now, how did that happen? All right, we'll go up to verse 21. <laughs> okay, because there you see King David, who, of course, is in the line of Jesus. Look at verse 21. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Now, if you know your Old Testament history here, if you know the book of Ruth, you know that Boaz married Ruth, and it is a result of Boaz and Ruth's marriage that they end up having a son. His name's Obed. Obed has a son who is Jesse, and Jesse is the father of King David. And, of course, David is in the line of Jesus Christ. Do you see the blessing? What are the main people in the next books? <clears throat> of course, the next books you have which really in the Hebrew Bible originally was one book. Okay? I hope you understand that Samuel was originally one book. And it was very helpful because uh, they, they actually divided it into two parts because it was so big it couldn't fit on one scroll. It was massive. Okay? So they did us a, a service by dividing it up into two books. But what are the main people in the two books of Samuel? Well, one of them should be obvious, right? Who's it named after? <laughs> it's named after Samuel. Of course he's going to be one of the main characters. Now how do you feel when you read about <clears throat> Samuel? Are you encouraged or discouraged? I hope you're encouraged. He was a godly man. But before Samuel comes along, remember Samuel's parents brought Samuel to the temple and they, they gave their son to God. Who was the priest at the temple at that time? Eli. Eli, how do you feel about Eli? Do you feel encouraged or discouraged? I hope you're discouraged. Because he wasn't godly. He had a lot of faults, like we do. And then, of course, Samuel comes after him. We should be encouraged. And then after Samuel, who comes? The people ask for a king. Who is the first king of Israel? Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Are you encouraged or discouraged by Saul? I'm discouraged. I'm discouraged by Saul. Yeah. 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 Part of the reason I'm, I'm discouraged is because the people weren't trusting in God, because God was their king, and they should have kept God as their king. So that, that's, that's partly why I'm discouraged. But the other thing that discourages me is that King Saul walked away from the Lord. He started trusting in himself. He was trusting in his armies. He, he became quite, uh, quite angry and bitter. Uh, you can see that by the fact that he tried to kill David with a spear several times. Remember, David's playing the harp. 
Saul takes up the spear and tries to pin David against the wall with a spear. That's not, rather, that's not a nice thing to do, is it? So he, he became a very nasty king. He, he, I mean, he even criticized his own son, caused David to flee into the wilderness for his life. So I, I'm, I'm very discouraged when I read about their first king. Yes, God did give them what they deserve. <laughs> um, but that's, that's not always a good thing. So who comes along after, after Saul? Who's the next king? David. Are you encouraged or discouraged by David? For the most part, I hope you're encouraged. Because, because David comes along, these are the golden years of Israel. David is the man after God's own heart. Of course, he's a sinner, just like I am. He, he lusts, just like I do. Okay, uh, He murders. I haven't murdered, as far as I know. Remember, Jesus said, if you're angry against someone, you have committed murder in your heart. So many of us have probably committed murder in our hearts when we get angry with someone. So many of us are murderers, just like David. But, but for the most part, he was a man, he, you know, he writes a lot of the Psalms, he writes right scripture, he's, you know, and, and the, the kingdom is doing well during his reign. So you feel, for the most part, you should feel encouraged. Who comes after David? His son Solomon. Do you, are you encouraged or discouraged? Well, again, I, I, have, I have mixed emotions with Solomon. I mean, there, there's some good things, but there's a lot of bad things. I mean, for one thing, he marries too many women. Uh, <clears throat> he gets involved in idolatry. And uh, after that, I mean, the, the nation just goes downhill. <laughs> In fact, look at 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. I hope you're starting to get the point. I'm showing all these people to you for a reason. Because there's, there's a function... There's a point at issue within these historical books, all right? That's why I'm showing this to you, all right? But anyway, look at 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except, ooh, there's that nasty word, except, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Yeah. So what did he love? What does it say he loved? Solomon loved Yahweh. Solomon loved Jehovah. Solomon loved God. He walked in the statutes of his father, David. Go over to chapter 11. Chapter 11. Chapter 11. 1 Kings 11. Now, I I want you to notice the word loved. Again, you will see the word loved. 1 Kings 11, verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women. So what else did he love? Okay, That's great. He loved God. He should love God. But what else does, does Solomon love? He loved what? Many foreign women. So we have to ask the question. Okay, here's two things that are mentioned in the Bible that Solomon loves. The question is, which one did he love more? Which one do you love more? Well, in the end, it shows which one he loved more. He loved women more than he loved God. 
He built altars to heathen, false gods. He, built, he was involved in idolatry, which clearly shows whenever we, we have idols of our hearts, it shows we love ourselves more than we love the one who is worthy of our love. So in the end, he loved those women more, and this is why we ought to have mixed feelings about Solomon. So we see in these books how Israel got the land, but we also see how Israel lost the land. We see how Israel lost the land. This idolatry that Solomon kind of started them down this road of idolatry, what did it lead to? Where did this road lead? It led to destruction and captivity. Read the last couple books in the historical books. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those, by the way, those, those books are really the last of your, New Testament, or of your Old Testament, except for maybe one of the prophets. Chronologically speaking, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and, and, and Esther are the last of your Old Testament. So we see where that led. That idolatry led to captivity, destruction. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire came in, conquered the northern territory of Israel. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians conquered the southern territory of Israel, ransacked Jerusalem, slaughtered thousands of Israelis, destroyed the temple, burned the city to the ground, and took off people, such as Daniel and his three friends, back to Babylon. So we see the destruction and the captivity there. But we also see in these historical books how Israel got the land back. And that's one of the points of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. How they got the land back. Of course, it was a prophecy that they would. And it was even prophesied the king who would send them back. And of course, Cyrus was that man. Cyrus fulfilled God's prophecy of sending some some of the exiles back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah, who was the king's cupbearer, goes back to Jerusalem to build the walls and to build the people. So what is the point at issue? I hope you get the point. Here's the point. We're talking about people. There's something in common about these people. You notice, by the way, most of them are kings. What does that show you? The point at issue is this. Here it is. Leadership. The point at issue is leadership. And by just simply reading the names of these books highlights to you the pointed issue. Who do you have? Joshua, he's a leader. (laughs) Judges, they're leaders. Samuel was a leader. Kings, kings are leaders. Nehemiah was a leader. Ezra, Ezra was a leader. Okay, you get the point? These are all leaders. In the end, what happens, though, with these leaders? In the end, we see that human leadership fails. Even the man after God's own heart failed, didn't he? Commits adultery and murder, he lies, he doesn't love his neighbor, he doesn't love God with all. He breaks all ten commandments, just as we do. He failed. Every one of these leaders failed. Why? Because they sin. And the wages of sin is death. They died. They all died. And there's a lesson to be learned in this because we cannot put our trust in human leadership. There is a very, very important uh, uh, lesson, my friend. You cannot trust human leadership. There is no perfect leader except Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, that shows us the function of these books. The function is to show the need for a perfect 
king. And who is that king? That's the point of Matthew. Matthew is showing that Jesus is the king. And the only one who can fulfill these offices is Jesus Christ. He is the perfect priest. He is the perfect king. Well, what's the next section of your Bible? The profe- or the poetical books, sorry, the poetical books. All the way from Job to the Song of Solomon. By the way, many think that Job is possibly the oldest book in the Bible. Job probably lived around the time of Abraham, during the time of the early patriarchs. And during this, this time period, we have uh, um, these books, I should say. It, Israel's two greatest kings wrote most of the poetical books. Who were Israel's two greatest kings? Of course, David and Solomon. David and Solomon wrote most of, the, most of what you have here. David wrote about half of the Psalms. Solomon wrote most of Proverbs. Maybe, most likely, wrote Ecclesiastes. And, of course, he wrote the Song of Solomon. So what did they write about, you might ask? What did they write about? Well, let me give you the contents here as we think about these books. What are the contents of these books? Quickly, Psalms. What's Psalms about? Well, look at Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 gives away the answer to what the book of Psalms is all about because Psalm chapter 1 is an introduction to the entire Psalter. You need to think of Psalm chapter 1 as the introduction. It is introducing you to something. It is the gateway into the Psalter. What does Psalm 1 tell us about? Well, let's read it. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. What's the point? What is that introducing you to? Psalms is, 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 is showing us here a comparison in Psalm 1, really. It's, it's a comparison or a contrast, if you will, between the ungodly and the godly. The ungodly person is simply someone who is not like God. That's what it means to be ungodly. If you're not like God, then you're ungodly. Woe to us who... who we, we often think wrong on this, by the way. We often think, well, <clears throat> the ungodly, well, you know, that's, that's those people who are, you know, are at the maximum security prison. They're the ones who are ungodly. Really? No. <laughs> By the way, if you get hot, Gene, you can move. Uh, I know that sun gets hot. But they, an ungodly person is simply someone who is not like God. And of course, the Bible says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So you know what that makes us? It makes every one of us ungodly. Psalm 1 is an overview of the whole entire book. The theme is this, the way of walking by the word of God. The theme for Psalms is the way of walking by the Word of God. You want to know how to walk 
by the word of God? You want to know how to please God? You want to know how to be godly? Read the book of Psalms. It'd be very helpful. Then you come to the book of Proverbs. There's a word that starts with W that's mentioned a lot in the book of Proverbs. You remember what that word is? It is the word wisdom. The word wise and wisdom is used 120 times in the book of Proverbs. Do you think God wants to show you something about being wise or, or having wisdom? Of course he does. You want to know what, what wisdom looks like? Read the book of Proverbs. So the theme is wisdom, the wisdom of the way that's introduced in the book of Psalms. Then you come to the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, there's a word that's mentioned over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, which shows you what its theme is. You know what that key word is? It is vanity. Some translations use the word meaninglessness. Vanity or meaninglessness. So the theme is this, the vanity or meaninglessness of any other way. Ecclesiastes is showing us Anything that we do under the sun, that that phrase, under the sun, is used over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Anything we do under the sun that leaves God out is meaningless, it is empty, it is vanity. So you wonder why. You wonder why you feel, you go to work, and you you, you go to work and you feel like, why do I go to work? What, what, What meaning is there to my work? If you feel that way, it's because you're, you're doing, as, as Ecclesiastes says, under the sun, you've left God out. Because everything you do, according to 1 Corinthians 10.31, is to be done to the glory of God, including your work. God is a creating God, and he's told us to be creating people because we're made in his image. Solomon, you see there, he experiments with everything. I mean, he... He has all these women, he has all the sex, and he has everything, his, his eyes desire, pleasure that, that he could possibly get. And the end result is he finds it's all meaningless, it's all vanity, it's all empty, because he left God out. And you can see the end result in Ecclesiastes 12. Look what he says, the very last chapter, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Verse 13, here's what he has to say. After he gets everything his heart desires, he experiments with all of these things, and he sums up by saying this. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, then we come to the last book of the poetical section, which is the Song of Solomon. Look at the first two verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And then the Shulamite speaks. This Shulamite woman who, who was in love with King Solomon. Here's what she says. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. So what's this about? The theme is the devoted affection of a woman for a king. It's that simple. The Shulamite woman was in love with King Solomon. And King Solomon was in love with the Shulamite woman. It's too bad his love wasn't totally devoted to her, though. Sadly, he he ended up with other women in his life. 
So what is the point of the content? What is the function? Now, let me, let me just say this, because what I'm about to say is speculative, okay? I want to be very careful as I, as I tread down this road here. And I, and I don't, quite frankly, I don't have a chapter and verse to prove this. Uh, but, but what I want to say is this. As we think about the function of these books, what is the function of these books? If you think, if you think about the function of the Pentateuch, if you think about the function of the historical books, if you carry on that theme... How, do, how does the poetical books carry on that theme? Well, again, this is speculative. I don't have chapter and verse to prove this. But Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Is it to reveal what the perfect king will be like when he is finally found? Is that at least part of the reason those books are there? To show us what the perfect king will be like when he is finally found? I, I have to wonder. I have to wonder. What about the Song of Solomon? I mean, <laughs> we often, uh, those of us who are married, we, we like to make jokes about that book, don't we? Uh, by the way, guys, I don't recommend you talk the same way. Or, or you ladies, I don't rec- necessarily recommend you talk the same way. We, we use different language nowadays. Uh, anyway, you can look at that book and think about that. But the Song of Solomon, is it possibly to reveal how we're going to feel when we finally find the king? Is that, does, does the feelings and the emotions there reveal anything about how we should feel about the king when we finally see him? By the way, there's many godly men, you can read their commentaries, who believe that this, this book here, the Song of Solomon, pictures not only a physical relationship between the Shulamite woman and King Solomon, but it, it's, it's also, some think it's even showing the relationship with Jesus Christ and his bride, which of course Ephesians 5 says is the church. I don't know. I haven't made a decision on that. The poetic section is almost, in a way, a subset, if you will, of the historical books because I think, I think at least in a small way, it is, it is revealing what the ideal king looks like and how we should feel about him. Well, that brings us to the last section. Okay, Quickly, we'll wrap it up here. In the prophetic books, there are uh, 17 prophets here, all the way from Isaiah to Malachi. You have major and minor ones, and just simply by major, that means they're bigger, there's more content there, minor, they're smaller. What are the contents, though? Look at Isaiah. Okay? Let's just look at one of the major prophets here, and you get an idea of what the contents are. Okay, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, look at verses 1 and 2. Okay? Isaiah 2, 1 and 2 says this, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's part of the content. But let's move on to verse 2. Now it came to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Okay? You can see two contents of the prophetic books here in those two verses alone. So if you've wondered, what is the, what is the primary content of the prophetic books? Number one, predictions or prophecy. Predictions or prophecy. The prophets, by the way, uh, are, are not just predictions. It's not just prophecy. There's other things there as well. Okay, Look at Isaiah chapter 1, for example. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Okay? 
Uh, you read this, you're going to notice this is not prediction going on here in Isaiah 1, verse 2. Look at this. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel and have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. That doesn't sound like prediction and prophecy, does it? <laughs> no, that sounds like something else, which gives away the second content to the prophetic books. Well, let me ask you this. If you're still wondering, well, what, what is that? What is this kind of literature we just read in Isaiah 1, verses 2 through 5? If you heard someone talking like this in a church service, what would you call it? You would call it preaching. You would call it preaching. So there is the second kind of content of the prophetic books. You have predictions or prophecy, but you have also a lot of preaching. That is an example of preaching. And that's not pragmatic preaching either. Who are they preaching to? Who are they preaching to? It's a good question. Well, the content of the prophets, may I remind you, as we think about who they're preaching to, the, the content needs to be weaved into the historical books. Remember, it's not chronological. It's divided up into its literary styles. So, most of the Old Testament uh, would be fairly chronological in its genre, but the prophets certainly are not. Uh, the prophets need to be weaved into the kings of Israel. All right, to see that... I'll show you an example here. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? Isaiah tells you when, when he was alive in regards to the historical books. Look at Isaiah 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. When? When did he live? It mentions a few kings here. Look at this. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. And a lot of times they even tell you which kingdom they were in, whether they were in the northern kingdom or the southern. No, so notice here he is preaching during the time of some specific kings here. Okay? So, that tells you when the prophets lived. They lived during the times of Israel's kings. All right, let's see if this pattern holds up. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. Okay, is, I, is Isaiah one-off? Or does this pattern hold up throughout all of the prophets of Israel? Okay, Jeremiah chapter 1. Are you all with me? Shake your head if you're with me, class. Okay, thank you very much, class. All right, stay awake. All right, here we go. Isaiah, or sorry, Jeremiah 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priest who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. Who's he? If you know your Old Testament Israel history, he's a king. In the 13th year of his reign, in fact. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the 5th month. 
So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, okay, you say, okay, so Isaiah and Jeremiah show us when they lived, when they were preaching and giving their predictions. Does it carry on that way? All right, let's look at the first minor prophet. Turn to Hosea. Turn to Hosea, the first minor prophet. Okay, you have to go past Ezekiel. Keep going past Ezekiel. Go past Daniel. Okay. Those are the minor or so sorry, those are the major prophets. Then you come to the first minor prophet who is Hosea. Let's see if this pattern holds up. Hosea chapter 1. Hosea 1 verse 1 says this. The word of the Lord came to Hosea the son of Beri in the days of who? Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and who are they? Kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Who is he? He's king of Israel. Okay, do you get the point? <laughs> in other words, here's the point. The prophetic dudes, okay, they get interweaved with the kings of Israel, all right? That's a very theological deep word. It's, sorry, that just came out. So what are the prophets preaching about, all right? <clears throat> what are the prophets preaching about? We just said that their content is prophecy or predictions as well as preaching, but what are they preaching about? We just answered the question who they're preaching to, when they lived. So they're living in Israel and Judah, and they're preaching during the times of these kings, but what are they preaching about? Well, let's think about this one book here. I love this little book called Hosea. Let me tell you about Hosea for a moment. This is an interesting book because God told this man, this poor man, I feel sorry for this guy. God told him to go and marry an adulterous woman. I am thankful that I am not him. And even though she was a prostitute, maybe she was even a temple prostitute, which is very common during that time, in the midst of, the, of their idolatry and worshiping of their, of their idols, they would have priests and priestesses, and they would have all these sexual orgies that would take place in and around the temple. And so God tells Hosea to marry her. Later, she, she ends up leaving Hosea, and, and she's, she, apparently she sold herself into prostitution. God tells Hosea to go after her. Hosea goes after her, brings her back. Why? What, what was the point of that? Why would God torture this poor guy and tell him to do this? Because it was a picture it was a picture for the Israelites because they had done the exact same thing. They were unfaithful to God. And God chased them down. God was faithful to them, even though they were unfaithful to him. Their relationship, if you will, Hosea's and Gomer's relationship was an object lesson, if you will. <laughs> and you say, what is their object lesson for? For what? It's an object lesson for God's loyalty. God is loyal. God is faithful even when we are not. So what is the point at issue here? Loyalty. The point at issue in the prophetic books is loyalty. What were the prophets preaching? God called for a commitment from his people. He wanted them to be committed, totally committed to Him, to worship no other gods, to have no other gods, to make no graven images before Him. He was to be worshipped and worshipped alone. 
God called for commitment from his people, and in turn, he assured them of his loving kindness if you follow that commitment. And so we need to go back to when God made the old agreement, that old covenant, and you can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. You say, when did God make this agreement? When did God make this covenant with his people? It's in Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Is everyone there? Deuteronomy 5. All right. I want you to see this agreement that God made with his people. Deuteronomy 5, it says, And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, which, by the way, is the same as Sinai. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain, from the midst of the fire. I stood before the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up the mountain. He said, that is, God said, here's God's words. Here they are. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So there it is. There's the agreement. God says, you do this, you commit yourself to me and to me alone, and I will show loving kindness to you. By the way, this is the second giving of the law, because the first giving of the law was, remember, in Exodus. And this is, Deuteronomy is is essentially the the second giving of the law. And what does God expect in return? What did God expect in return? Look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, here's what God expected in return. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's what God expected in return. To love Him with all, holding nothing back. So, the point at issue is loyalty. The prophets were preaching and, and, and calling for this commitment to God alone. Were the prophets successful? Were they successful? Well, to get the end of the story, we really need to go back to the end of the historical book. So go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. The end of the historical books gives us what happened at the end of the prophetic books. Look at 2 Chronicles 36, which comes after Samuel the kings, okay, then you come to Chronicles, okay? So second, make sure you're in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36. Second Chronicles 36. Very last of the historical books here. Or I should say, um, 
before they went into exile and destruction, I should say. Anyway, Second Chronicles 36. Look at verse 16. And we can answer the question of where the prophet successful. Verse 16. But they mocked the messengers of God. That's referring to the prophets. Despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. So were they successful? Well, that depends on how you define success. (laughs) How do you define success? Well, if you're a pragmatist, you would say these guys failed miserably because they had no fruit, as far as we could tell. Something needs to be done here, obviously. As far as we can tell, it seems that they failed. Were the prophets successful? Well, in human eyes, it, it appears they failed because they weren't listening. The nation went into destruction and exile. <laughs> they either died or were carried off to a foreign land. Is that how you define success? Well, not in human eyes, but they did what God wanted them to do. But the reality of the matter is something had to be done. They tried to do what God wanted them to do. Something did need to be done, but these men couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They could not do it. So what is the function? The function is to show the need for a perfect prophet. The last prophet who is Malachi turned to chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. The last prophet gives us a prophecy of the perfect prophet who would come. Who is this perfect prophet who would come? Malachi chapter 3. Very last book in your Old Testament. Very last book in your Old Testament. And it's very interesting how this book ends. It's very important for you to sit up and take notice of how a book starts and how that book ends. It tells you a lot about that book. You can get a quick glimpse or summary of that book by looking at the beginning and the end. Now, look at Malachi 3, verse 1. Malachi 3, verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger, capital M, messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, yes, he is. And in fact, that was a prophecy. Because remember, between Malachi and the book of Matthew, there was about 400 years of silence. 400 years where no book of the Bible was written. This is predicting the one who would come. This prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus Christ is the only one who fulfills all the function of the Old Testament because he is the perfect priest, he is the perfect king, and he fulfills this one as well. He is the perfect prophet. I want you to notice how, the old covenant, how this old covenant ends. How does the old covenant end? Are you encouraged or discouraged? Look at this. Malachi 4, verse 5. Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. What is the very last word in your Old Testament? Is that encouraging or discouraging? 
The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Agreement ends with a curse. It ends with a curse. Oh, oh praise God for the New Testament, which the Lord willing will look at next week. Because in the Old Testament, you see the God who makes promises. But in the New Testament, you see the God who keeps those promises. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there are five characteristics of the Old Covenant that I want you to see here. Five characteristics of the Old Covenant. Number one, you have unkept laws. Unkept laws. What you believe about God is very important. Do you believe He is a God who keeps His promises? Who makes laws and keeps them? I hope you do. Number two, unavailing sacrifices. You see there, particularly in the book of Leviticus, your five, at least five sacrifices. And what do they do? They cover sin, but they never take care of sin. And they have to keep doing them over and over again. As Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats, it is impossible to atone for sin. Number three, you see unsuccessful leaders. Oh, they might be successful in a way for a time, but in the end, all leaders die. Human leaders die. Number four, unfulfilled prophecies. There's a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that have still not been fulfilled. Does that mean that God failed or that God lied? No. Because in the New Testament, we will see God fulfilling those promises that he made in the Old. And number five, unsatisfied longings. You should finish reading your Old Testament and you ought to be longing for the one to come. Who is it? Who is it? It is Jesus Christ. He is the God-man, the great high priest, the propitiation for our sin, the bread of life, the living water. He is the resurrection and the life. He is all of that and far, far more. So my friends, don't neglect the Old Testament, but don't just read the Old Testament. Don't just study the Old Testament. Don't just... Say, man, uh, that, that's weird. Um, I don't really like that, so I'm just going to stick to the New Testament. No. All Scripture is profitable and is profitable. Okay, It is profitable. God wrote it. It is inspired. It is profitable. He wants you to read it because He wants you to know His Son. How do you know God? How can you come to love Him and know Him and have a deep, meaningful relationship? Read the Old Testament. I read the Old Testament and I walk away with longings for Jesus Christ because He fulfills those old, unsatisfied longings. He is the one who meets my every need. He is the one who... who, uh, well, he, he solves the greatest problem we have, right? Which is sin. I no longer have to come and cut the throat of a lamb to, to do that all the time to atone for my sin. No, Jesus was the perfect lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. So my friends, I hope you would read the Bible, understanding this truth that Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king, and he is the one who will satisfy your longings. He is the one who fulfills these unfulfilled promises. He is the perfect leader. He is the one whom you can trust. And He will never fail you. He is the perfect sacrifice. And He is the keeper of fulfillment of God's laws. Love Him. Obey Him. 
and trust him. Let's pray.